if the phone rings in your newsroom and you pick up the phone and it's somebody ranting down the end of the phone about somebody you don't know who it is, are you going to report that? Are you going to put that on your online site or in your newspaper or TV broadcast? Of course not. But we do the equivalent to that with Twitter every day. A journalist's job is to seek out the truth and report it. It probably never was an easy job to do, but with digital technology and bad actors doing their best, it's probably never been more difficult. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Investigative journalist Stephen Davis has worked for the Sunday Times in both London and Los Angeles and was news editor and foreign editor of The Independent on Sunday. He's been a war and foreign correspondent, a TV producer for 60 Minutes in 2020, a newspaper editor, a documentary filmmaker for the BBC and Discovery. Stephen has also taught journalism to thousands of students from all over the world. For the last two years, Stephen has been doing research for his new book, Truth Teller, an investigative reporter's journey through the world of truth prevention. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. To bring everybody into this, we're talking across the planet. You're in uh, uh, New Zealand uh, right now. I'm in uh, Dunedin at the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand, closer to Antarctica than I am to the United States. Okay. Well, good. I hope that everything is going well there. Anyway, let's dive right into this. So this new book, you know, what inspired you to write it? I, I think that there's a there was a particular incident that occurred in one, of, in one of your classes that kind of clued you into the fact that maybe your students might not be good detectors as far as uh, the truth. I've taught journalism students from all around the world. In London, I used to have an average of 20 nationalities in my class, taught journalism students in Australia and New Zealand. Each year, I would give them a test, and the test was to go and research an individual online and to collect lots of information about that individual online and then to clearly decide what was factual and what was not. And each year that I've done this exercise with students, and bear in mind these are bright kids who want to be journalists, the numbers failing it went up. And I realized that they were a victim of the sheer volume of misinformation and disinformation that's circulating around the world. And for that reason, I decided to write Truth Teller. To be honest, I think that this misinformation and disinformation is is really the equivalent of a public health emergency now. You know, it's, it's like the Ebola virus, except it's more likely to kill society. The volumes of misinformation and disinformation, fake news, whatever you want to call it, around the world is vast, and our ability to detect it is not great. And I think this is a really serious issue for society. Interesting that you compare it to Ebola, a virus. When you think about our, you know, our information ecosystem, we don't have a lot of barriers that we would have in medical science that would prevent, you know, the spread of certain diseases. We don't have a lot of like stop gaps or stop gates that, that are going to prevent the spread of things. In fact, we have things that make it very easy for people to share information, to share misinformation, making the situation much, much worse and, and dif more difficult to challenge. Is that something else that you kind of looked at? No, there are no stop gaps whatsoever. Recent studies show that misinformation and disinformation outright lies travel around the world much more quickly than the truth. They're shared by people because often untrue stories seem exciting and interesting than the truth can seem mundane. There are no stop gaps whatsoever. And the, the people that used to be the gatekeepers who help the public 
kind of sift this stuff and sift the nonsense and the untruths from what was real, journalists, there were simply fewer of us there. We're chronically under-resourced now. Money for investigative reporting is less than it was. And so most of this stuff goes unchallenged. And I think that's a serious problem. I know that a few days ago, the Washington Post had just published something that said that, you know, President Trump had, you know, they had said that he he had said 10,000 falsehoods that they were able to prove, or at least able to, to point to and say that these are false. Is that really what we're talking about? Or are we talking about something even bigger? It's much broader than President Trump. He's an example, by the way, I think, of the fact that journalists haven't yet adapted to the world of social media and Twitter. We think we have, but to be honest, I don't think we have really. A tweet rockets around the world in seconds and is seen by millions, and then it'll be reported by media organizations. And then later on, when you read the, you know, the look at the New York Times online or whatever, you'll get the fact that this was wrong. In fact, the statement is wrong for X, Y, and Z, but it's too late. We haven't engaged properly with with social media, and we report things. We don't even know whether the people saying them are are real. I use it as an example uh, to my journalistic colleagues. I say, if the phone rings in your newsroom and you pick up the phone and it's somebody ranting down the end of the phone about somebody you don't know who it is, Are you going to report that? Are you going to put that on your online site or in your newspaper or TV broadcast? Of course not. But we do the equivalent to that with Twitter every day. This is going viral on Twitter. This is happening. This is happening. We don't even know whether these people are real. So that's one issue. The second thing is I think Americans, for understandable reasons, have become slightly obsessed with Donald Trump. But it's so much broader a problem than that. It impacts medicine and science and all areas of life. And um, I'm actually researching a new book. I'm lucky enough to be commissioned to write a new book before the first one is even out. That's more about social media. And the volumes are just vast. And in parts of the Internet, there are millions of people reading and signing on to things that are simply untrue, but they are believing it. And this isn't even necessarily just like a political thing. It's not just like a, a politician is lying about something to try to get people to believe a particular thing. This is this goes even down into, you know, science and mathematics and, you know, data that's out there that, that's either untrustworthy or isn't really kind of supported by any science. And people are sharing that information as if it, if it were fact. I know that one of the things that, that people were criticizing the Trump administration for early on was, you know, there was a, a push prior to the time that he came to office to try to create more open data so that people could use that data for various scientific reasons. But when a, when a government sort of takes that stuff off offline and if there's public information that they're not making it available for the public to, you know, use to weigh the truthiness of something they see, that's also problematic. Absolutely. In Truth Teller, I actually have a a small section dealing with the fact that Freedom of Information Act requests, for instance, no longer work properly and that journalists simply don't have the time in many cases to pursue these leads. So here's what happens if governments remove your access to the actual data and then they lie more cleverly, as do corporations and many other institutions. So we have the volume of disinformation and misinformation. It makes it easier to hide the lies. It makes it harder to investigate actual scandals and stories. 
you can simply hide your misdeeds effectively in an ocean of misinformation and disinformation circulating around the world. So how do we get out from under this? Well, let me ask that two ways. First, let me ask you, how can we make people more aware that this is a problem? Okay, so first off, I mean, I've started the process, I hope, in my own small way by writing Truth Teller. I think all educational institutions need to engage with this now. I think teaching media literacy, teaching people to be informed consumers and sharers of information, teaching people about the actual damage done by sharing misinformation online is absolutely vital. I believe in 10 years time, everybody will be teaching these things. I've designed a course for the University of Otago, which is being launched next year, but actually it needs to be taught at every level. I'm talking to a foundation in Australia about introducing the subject at primary school level, high school level, universities, adult education. You know, I spoke to a group of over 200 retirees in New Zealand the other day, and they're simply lost in this mess and don't know what to trust. So education really is the first answer. I'm a great believer, Michael, in the H.G. Wells quote, famous quote, where he said, history is a race between education and catastrophe. And I think we have to teach this stuff. We have to get people to understand it. It has to be right up there with history and science and maths and English and so forth and in what we teach. I think that journalism has to adapt. We've fallen for the siren song of social media. We've been told that that's what we should be reporting and interested in because we have these hundreds of millions of people doing it. But all that means is we're just kind of following the crowd and we're being led in the wrong direction. The traditional journalism skills of getting information, getting out, interviewing people, digging around things, trying to explain things to the public who may be confused about an issue, being determinedly independent. We need to reassert those skills and those values in the modern age. Yeah, and that's something we've talked a lot about in many different podcast episodes. I had a group in here a couple of years ago that what they were what they're talking about is very much what you said, is that we need to be instructing people in, in high school and younger about, you know, how to use the Internet, you know, how to determine the, the truthfulness of something as part of the regular curriculum. I mean, you know, how to use the Internet effectively so that you can stay informed. One of the analogies that I used before was, you know, when I was a kid, when you got to reach a certain grade, they taught you how to go to the library, how to research a topic, how to fill out cards and sort of understand the matrix of the information of the library. And it's the same sort of thing that we need to be, be doing in our school systems now. When people are in, out in the real world and needing to make decisions and about what information they're going to trust, they can begin to recognize what is truthful and, and what is questionable you know, getting people to question. I get a sense sometimes that people are annoyed, I think. They're both enamored with and annoyed with social media. On the one hand, they recognize that they can't believe everything in it, but they want to believe the things that sort of su support their ideology or the, their particular interests. And that, that can be problematic. Yeah, well, here's the interesting thing as well, I think, about the internet. We think it connects us with the world, but in a way, it only connects us with like-minded people. And in another important way for journalism, 
it leaves us actually disconnected to the world. In uh, Truth Teller, I, I use a set of tools for truth prevention. I explain the way these work. And one thing is simply distance. You would think in the modern world we felt connected to everything, but there are occasions where people cover things up simply by relying on the fact that journalists will be sitting in their, in their office at home and not traveling to the scene of where the event happened. Every dictator knows that, you know, if you want to massacre your people, the best thing to do is to keep Western TV cameras away because then we won't be paying attention. I use in the book the example of the Congo, a difficult place for journalists to travel to, where 17 million people died in probably the worst set of kind of catastrophes of the last hundred years, and it didn't get the coverage it deserved. A specific US example is when a scientist died in mysterious circumstances at South Pole Station, which is run by the US Antarctic program, and that was a long way away and difficult for journalists to cover, the US authorities simply frustrated a proper investigation, frustrated to the extent, by the way, that we still don't know to this day how that man died. Right. You know, that speaks to a lot of the things that you were talking about, about investigative journalism and us exercising our skills and doing our due diligence going out in the field, talking to people, pushing our sources, and trying to get those documents when we can get those documents. But, you know, you said also, I mean, we're under-resourced, and at the same time, we have people who are attacking our profession because they perceive us as tools of one party or the, or the other. So it's a bit of a mess, I think. <laughs> it is a mess. And, you know, we, we, look, we've always been attacked. When I was editor of New Zealand's national paper and a new prime minister had come in, a Labour prime minister, she'd been in for about 100 days and she was doing quite well at the time and our, our reporting reflected that and then the other side came in to attack me saying I was biased, etc. I explained to him actually I made the decision, some people think it's eccentric, many years ago not to join any party, not to vote for any party. I've been completely independent. We've always been under attack. One of the solutions to this issue, and one of the things I most firmly lectured my journalism students are, if you want free media, these young kids want everything for free on the internet, they want music, they, want, they don't want to pay for anything. If you want free media, what you're going to get is fake news and propaganda. If you want proper journalism, you have to pay for it. Now, I think that message has taken a long, long time to hit home, but there are some slightly encouraging signs out there. The New York Times, I think, now has two and a half million digital subscribers. Apparently, last year, a million people made a voluntary contribution to the Guardian newspaper online so that its material could be available. Maybe the worm has turned on that. that. Let's hope so. Right. And, you know, to speak also to your, your call for more education, people, bad people, people in power want to keep it's better for them when people are ignorant of what they are doing. And so it behooves us as journalists, as you know, people who live in a free society to fight for, you know, educating people for sharing good information. We have to fight for it. And we have to also We've been very bad as journalists in explaining the value of what we do. I think we've just kind of assumed for years and years 
that people understood the value of what we do and appreciated it, and that's absolutely not the case. I use the example of when I became a, a young reporter the first time, the movie All the President's Men had come out. I saw it three times on the first day, you know, Redford and Hoffman playing Woodward and Bernstein. And it's interesting if you look at the 70s, when you saw a journalist in a TV drama or a movie, they were often portrayed as heroes. If you see a journalist in a TV drama or a movie now, they're often portrayed as sleazy or somebody breaching somebody's privacy or doing something wrong. We have failed to defend the value of journalism. You know, when the Washington Post did its Super Bowl ad, and I thought that was really amazing, that Tom Hanks thing, I was disappointed to see that some journalists were saying, oh, this cost all this money and maybe it could have been spent on X, Y, and Z. But the truth is, it was a smart move to try and reach the general public, forget the politicians, reach the general public directly and say, what we do is valuable, what we do is important to society, and you will really miss us if we're gone. Trust me. I also am a child uh, journalist of All the President's Men. It had a huge effect on me in, in my choosing what my career path would be. And I know that I know many other people who did had the same experience. And you have probably had an experience where you have been out on a story and people speak to you in a certain way with a degree of disgust or lack of respect because you're a journalist. I've had that happen to me before. And the only way you can sort of change their minds is doing the work, you know, showing up, being that person who asks the question, who does the follow up and writes a good story and showing them that, you know, hey, I know you don't like what I do or you, or you think you don't like what I do, but what I do is important and there's an end result of it. You know, when you talk to people, you might say, look, I'm asking you difficult questions in some of my investigations about people who suffered in certain situations. I realize these are private matters for you. But here's the end goal. If we don't publicize the scandal, then the people who covered it up are going to get away with it. So you kind of have to obviously sell it to them in that way. Right. Again, there are things that we've talked about on the podcast, solutions journalism, for example, where you go to a community, you know, you, you have a pop-up newsroom, you're talking to the people to show the work that you're doing, and you're listening to them as to what stories they see are important and are impactful to them. Creating that dialogue with your audience so that they know who you are, that's important to help us towards that solution. Yep. And look, of course you want to talk to them about what's important to them, but we also have to get most of them out of their social media filter bubble and say, yeah, actually, it's it's to your advantage as a citizen to hear this other stuff. It's to your advantage as a citizen to kind of think widely about how you use your vote and important issues to society. Again, we've kind of lost that as well. We've lost the idea of its value and we've got to get that back. So what do you think about some of the initiatives that people have put forward to try to come up with technology that sort of measures the truthiness of something or trustworthiness of something, maybe websites that sort of rate the content of certain media outlets, news outlets, to see how truthful they are? I think they're all good initiatives. Fact-checking sites are obviously extremely useful. In a way, these things are a, a bit of a, a minority niche at the moment. And one of the really major things we need to do is to 
take Facebook and have it treated the way it actually is, which it's a broadcaster and publisher. You know, somehow they've got away with many, many years of just saying, yes, this stuff is on our platform, but, you know, we're not responsible for it. I've done a lot of media interviews in the last few weeks and, of course, pointed out to everybody in every newspaper, radio, television, you're responsible for what you broadcast. You're responsible for what you put on your site. We have to make Facebook responsible. I think it's a really socially irresponsible company. I think it's hoovered up digital media and damaged local journalism. One thing we could force Facebook to absolutely do, there are literally thousands of talented unemployed or not fully employed journalists around the world, Facebook could hire these people as moderators using their professional skills to check and flag up content. Well, yeah, especially when you think about, we just had a, a recent, one of these many recent shootings that we had where the, the shooter actually broadcast video live on Facebook and it took a long time before somebody saw that, flagged it and took it down. That's a worst case scenario. This shooter, by the way, Michael, lived just down the road from me in Dunedin. He had clocked the Dunedin Mosque as a potential site right. for his atrocity, and then he went up to Christchurch, which is just north of here. And, you know, Facebook essentially haven't taken the, the, the white supremacist fringe seriously. When they're forced to take something seriously, you'll find actual action. For instance, a few years ago, they were forced to stop ISIS videos going online and by and large stop that. They were forced to um, stop child pornography and by and large stop that. They simply have failed to take this issue seriously. And you can't tell me they can't have an algorithm to deal with this stuff. You and I both know if we go on Facebook for about after about three seconds, whatever we've typed in, they'll send us a perfectly tailored advertisement for it. It's really a question of forcing them overall into being responsible, and they must be made responsible for what is on their platform. They are a publisher and they are a broadcaster. Of course, they partially got away with it because they're extraterritorial, they're worldwide. So whenever any individual government or country tries to talk about responsibility and regulation, they say, oh, well, we're not based there, we're based somewhere else. So you mentioned before that you've you put together this curriculum. Could you sort of describe it? What is it you're trying to, to teach and how are you teaching it? In the, um, the new uh, University of Otago course, it begins with a whole lot of discussion about uh, the value of truth and the value of getting real information, factual information to make informed decisions about your life and to bring it home to young people individually by saying, in my opening lecture, I'll be saying, would you, when asked by your friend for a recommendation of the best burger place to go in Dunedin, deliberately misinform them? Well, no, of course not. I wouldn't. They're my friend. So why then would you join a long string of millions of people around the world deliberately misinforming people by passing on false information? You know, studies show many people pass on retweet tweets without even getting to the end of the 140 characters or like something on Facebook or pass it on without checking that it's correct. So a lot of it is about individual responsibility, of course, about identifying this stuff. Um, there's no point in you saying it wasn't my fault. Somebody else created the falsehood. 
Michael, it's like the getaway driver saying they weren't really responsible for the bank robbery. If you pass on false information, you are responsible for the act of passing it on. You should think to yourself, everything I pass on, I need to check if it's real. I need to not deliberately mislead people. And then we'll go through a various process of having them identify proper news sites, flagging up things that are fake news, and also looking at why you believe this stuff. There's a lot of fascinating information out on this. And politicians and dictators really understand this stuff better than individual people. One interesting technique which I describe in Truth Teller is a thing called the big lie. And this is engaged in by Putin and by Trump and and others. And it's based on the way your brain works. Our minds are trained to believe information we hear a lot that we are familiar with as trustworthy. So these people know this. So you tell an outrageous lie, a really big lie, and initially a lot of people might not believe you. But if you repeat it again and again and again, you can track the numbers believing it because the information is now familiar, goes up and up. And of course, this was shown with Trump and the Bertha theory. He, when he initially floated this, most of the Republican Party voters and mainstream Republican Party discounted it as a bit of nonsense. But after two years of repeating it endlessly, you can see the polls going up and the numbers believing it going up. So it's the familiarity over a period of time that, for them, constitutes enough for truthfulness. It's called the illusory truth effect, and uh, I discuss it in my new book. But it's, yeah, it's because of the way our brains work. If you think about it, friends and colleagues of yours who tell you things, they're familiar information and familiar people, you tend to believe it. So they understand by repeating the lie endlessly, it becomes more familiar and people are more likely to believe it. And then, of course, it helps also if you have a media echo chamber. So Trump says something and Fox News repeats it. And then Trump will say, I just saw this stuff on Fox News. People are talking about it. And then other people repeat it. And then Fox might quote him and he quotes Fox and other. And and it goes around in this circle. And eventually, for those people watching, it suddenly becomes familiar and therefore truthful information. So it's sadly, I mean, you know, I mentioned before how uh, the Washington Post, their comment about the 10,000 lies, uh, you know, and that's another aspect of this. If you say a thousand lies, it'll be much more difficult for them to, de- to determine what is true just by the sheer volume of the lies that you're telling. It almost seems like, you know, how can we break out of this? It seems like it's almost too much. How do we break this cycle? Is education and journalists doing their job, do you think that's going to be sufficient? All, all politicians, as you know, Michael, lie to consent or dissemble. He's rather unique in the sheer volume of his lies, but he knows that it works. From his point of view, it's worked spectacularly well, and that's not going to change. And in a way, there's a strange thing at work here, I think, in the States, that his lies have become so frequent that we tend to shrug them off, not be shocked by them, not even challenge them because there are so many just shrug our shoulders. And then that works for him, of course, as well, if people become complacent or used to it. But I get back to the tweet thing, which is his primary. At the moment, if something is tweeted and then the media organization reports the tweet, and then later on, the media organization might explain why this is wrong. 
but that's too late because the tweet has already been shared and seen by millions. So what we have to do to start with is if we report the tweet, we pause, we don't rush into it, and actually reporting the tweet right from the start, if it's wrong, if it's factually wrong, we have to say so right from the start and not because otherwise we'll never catch up with the lie. That's interesting because in the early days of our podcast, we, we were talking a lot about how to you know, use social media to cover live events, you know, something like the Boston bombing, where there was so much information coming out so quickly, you know, how newsrooms deployed their social media, you know, what they shared, how they identified things, how they fact checked in real time. And one would hope that that's something that we need to be doing all the time. We need to be looking at what we're doing on social media and how we're sharing things. Because, as you said, each time you tweet, you know, or retweet, you're, you may very well potentially be, be helping millions of, of people get misinformation. I know this sounds heretical to many journalists, but I firmly believe when reporting big breaking stories, we need to you know, sacrifice speed. I'm sorry, I know the news cycle is important. I know people think being first is important, but being right is more important. The Boston bombing, for instance, as you know, was a lot of the early information that came out and that was wrong. And we had that whole appalling thing on Reddit of people actually identifying the man as the bomber and he wasn't the bomber. You know, we need to go back to traditional values if we take an extra minute or two or five minutes to report something, and by the way, make sure we attribute it and get it right, that's better than being fast and first. Right. And I think people will see the value in that. I think, you know, this is another thing that I've observed as the conversation is changing around, you know, how we measure our audience in, online, you know, moving away from this idea of going for clicks and eyeballs and instead time spent in, in interaction on a website are becoming much more important measures. If we can move our thinking towards that direction, then we kind of get away from this idea of we have to grab people as quickly as we can. Instead, we, we give them content they can trust, maybe content that has a little more depth, then build an audience that way. Absolutely. Forget the clicks, forget the siren song of that. You and I know, I mean, there was no issue I have ever dealt with as a journalist, public policy, health, education, politics, any investigation I've ever done. There was no issue that's ever been explainable in 140 characters or in a short post. A lot of things in life are quite complicated and take a while to explain. And we need to accept that explain to people that, okay, you might have to spend 10 minutes reading this piece rather than 30 seconds looking at a tweet, but it will be to your advantage. It is to your advantage as a citizen in so many respects to be better informed. Then you make better decisions about your life. You make better decisions about voting. You make better decisions about public policy. We have to really hammer this home. Okay, well, we need to educate the public. <laughs> You're doing your job of educating journalists, uh, young journalists, future journalists, with your course and with your book. Sort of a wrap up here, since this is a, a journalist podcast, a podcast about journalism. You know, what are the marching orders do you give? Are you giving to to newsrooms right now? Where should they be focusing? Part of my Truth Teller book tour, I've actually been visiting newsrooms and talking to lots of journalists, and also 
visiting a lot of journalism education institutes and talking to students. So first and foremost, everybody should be adding a course on media literacy. We shouldn't assume, by the way, that young people are media literate in the real sense of the word in understanding this stuff. They're media literate in the way that they can use social media. But that's absolutely not the same thing as being a responsible consumer and share of information. So number one, for young people and actually in adult education and other things, explaining why that responsibility is important. For journalists, everybody needs to adopt a completely different social media policy, a completely different policy on reporting Twitter and things on Facebook and so forth. Not reporting something just because it's viral, because you truly don't understand where it came from. Often you don't understand if there are real people involved. The fact that a million people shared something on social media doesn't mean it's true and a story. It could just as easily mean it's false and it's spread rapidly. So we really have to hit home that message. Well, you've certainly given uh, me a lot of th- things to think about, and hopefully the, the people listening to that as well. Stephen, thank you very much for spending this time with us. Once again, the title of your book, Truth Teller, an investigative reporter's journey through the world of truth prevention. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.